And they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished. While those who followed were afraid. And again he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to them. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. And they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, We want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word this morning, open our hearts to receive it, and may it run with swiftness, Lord God, right and penetrate into the very core of our being, Lord, in order to bring forth transformation, O God, and the radical shift that you desire to do in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. This morning we are completing an eight-week series we've entitled Radical Shift Back to the Core of the Gospel. We began this series about ten weeks ago, as we've had a couple of other things in between, by looking at um, Mark chapter 8, verse 31, which was Jesus' first introduction to his disciples about the suffering that he would face. In fact, Mark 8, 31, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Over these eight weeks, we've seen that Jesus has repeated that prophecy three times. As he and the disciples are on their way to Jerusalem, Jesus is seeking to impart to them those things that will prepare them 
for His death and resurrection and ascension and His physical absence, but their preparation to continue on the work that He is giving them. And so for these last eight weeks, we've been looking at the radical shift that Jesus has has invited His disciples to enter into. And if you'll remember, those words, radical shift, mean something very significant. The first, radical, means a returning to the root. Jesus is messing with the very foundation stones of His disciples and... Much like you and I, they still don't get it. And so Jesus reminds them over and over again and brings them back to foundational truths in order that the whole building of their heart might be built aright. No matter what it is that we're building, if it's not built on a foundation that is established according to true... Whatever we build on top of that will be distorted and bent, right? So we want to have the solid foundation, the true foundation. And shift has to do with a dislodging and a repositioning as well as an intensification and an acceleration. And things are certainly intensifying and accelerating for the disciples as they're coming into Jerusalem. And they are being dislodged and repositioned in those foundation stones. That's what God is up to. That's what Jesus is up to as He's with His disciples. That's what He's up to in our hearts and lives and our life together as a congregation here at Bethel Christian Fellowship. So this morning as we bring this particular series to a close, and we'll be stepping back into the Gospel of Mark probably next year, to complete. But as we bring this particular set of things to a close here, I want to look at shift number eight, which I've entitled the Jesus style. The Jesus style. Now I just read for you Mark 10. Actually, I backed up and began in Mark 10, verse 32. But the focus of our attention this morning is on verses 35 to 45. And I would submit to you this morning that verse 45 is the key verse in the entire Gospel of Mark. The entire Gospel of Mark hangs on Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Because the whole focus of the Gospel of Mark, you know, every Gospel has a different focus. In the Gospel of Mark, the focus is on Jesus as the servant. And it says, it tells us, first of all, in Luke, chapter 19, verse 10, tells us His mission, for the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. And His method here is in Mark 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. So when you think about the Jesus style, I would invite you this morning to consider 
these two scriptures as foundational scriptures to understand the way in which Jesus lived out His life while He was here on earth, the the mission and the method with which He accomplished that mission that He was sent into the world to do. And I would invite you to consider that we as His disciples are invited to continue as the body of Christ, the work of Christ in the Jesus style. He came to seek and to save what was lost. Key scripture in the Gospel of Luke. Key scripture in the Gospel of Mark. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, let's take a few moments here this morning just to unpack that a little bit further. By responding to this question, what is the Jesus style? What is the Jesus style? Well, first of all, the Jesus style has to do with seeking. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. So let's start with the mission of seeking. If you go back to the Gospel of John, of course, John 1, uh, the the introductory chapter to the Gospel of John, gives us an an entire context to help us understand how Jesus came in to the earth and the means by which, the style by which he began to seek. All right? John chapter 1, (coughs) verses 10 to 14. He was in the world. Notice that. He was in the world. Though the world was made, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who received him, to those he believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Now, highlight this one. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I love the way that Eugene Peterson translates, and many of you have heard his translation of John 1.13 there. Um, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. The Word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. So what is the way, what is the Jesus style of seeking? It's an incarnational style. That's a big word that simply means he came and limited himself willingly to come and become among us, move into the neighborhood. Now I want you to take a moment and come with me just with a a flight of creativity for a moment and just 
think and ask yourself, if you were God and you were sending your son into the world, what would you do? How would you present yourself? If you wanted to reveal yourself to your creation, how would you go about presenting yourself? To the world. Well, think about it for a moment how God did do it. How did He present Himself? How did He come in and present Himself into the world? Well, first thing He did was He got Himself born in a barn. He was born in a barn. Now, we, of course, have sanitized this in a very, you know, we make it all very nice and clean, and it wasn't. Anybody been in a barn? (laughs) Stepping around the cow plops? Laying in a feeding trough with the saliva of animals. This was not all sanitized and cleaned up. This was his entry into the world. Born in a barn. Born to Mary and Joseph. Now we, of course, with our more, um, you know, we we have the luxury of time and and understanding and the scriptural revelation. So we understand all about the virgin birth. But you are God, and you are revealing yourself. Would you have revealed yourself this way? To a young girl, pregnant, out of wedlock? How'd that happen? Well, it was the Holy Spirit. Sure. Even in his day and time, Jesus was known, and, and forgive me, but this is, the, this is the reality, and this is what was spoken of about him, to use the very direct word, Jesus was known as a bastard, a bastard child, born out of wedlock. And in the scripture, a, a bastard child was cursed for generations. This is God coming to earth. Born, and and I mean, in Mary and Joseph, it's not like they were king and queen. Born in Bethlehem. Now, a famous city would have at least, you know, if they could come to some place, you know, Rome or some place that had substance and significance, but to some backwater town that nobody knew anything about it. Well, at least he had a great family past and a wonderful set of descendants, right? Have you read the genealogies lately? Have you read about Jesus' descendants? They include Rahab the prostitute, Jacob the cheat, Judah the womanizer, David the adulterer and the murderer. Oh, yeah. 
You're known by your family, a great family. But at least he has a beautiful name. Jesus, Jesus, there's just something about that name. Oh, yes, there is. It's a beautiful name. We love it. Jesus, of course, is the Greek of the Hebrew Joshua. He was, now, Joshua, that's a great name, Jehovah's Salvation. It was also like the number one name on the baby lists. There was a whole lot of people named Joshua. It wasn't exactly the flashy name of a king. It was sort of an ordinary name. Now, again, think about it. You're God. Your son is about to be born. What kind of fanfare would you provide? You know, two billion watt speakers up there. (coughs) Attention, Kmart shoppers. (coughs) God certainly had the capacity to get the attention of all of the world. So what kind of fanfare was Jesus born with? Well, he had a choir. I like choir. Choir is a really good thing. An angelic choir, a nice big choir. And who did they sing to? About a half dozen shepherds. Out in the fields, the the most remote, the most farthest, you know, the, the people who had the least amount of influence. But at least he was good looking. Have you seen the pictures? He was one good looking dude, right? Or was he? Isaiah 53, 12 says he he had no particular comeliness, no beauty, nothing that particularly attracted us that said, He could walk through crowds and not be recognized. Judas had to go up and kiss him so that people would recognize. Reared in Nazareth. That's where he was raised. Well, Nazareth. What kind of place is that to raise the Son of God? The moral and religious reputation of Nazareth was so bad that when Nathaniel heard that that's where he'd been raised, can anything good come out of there? Well, at least because he was the king, he had all kinds, at least he had a palace and possessions and all that kind of outer trappings of power, right? Right? Or did he? No. No place to lay his head. He never owned anything that we know of. Maybe the most basic of possessions. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Well, thank goodness, once it came time for him to begin his ministry, he had a really great advance man. Somebody who knew how to market really well. Right? Have you read the scriptures? Do you know this guy? John the Baptist? Clothing made of camel hair. 
leather belt, ate locusts and honey, said gracious things like to those coming out to be baptized, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Come on. Seeker sensitive. If you were introducing yourself to the world, is this how you do it? How about his interesting associates? That's a really good crew. You know? He went to the banks and the corporations and the best places in government and got all the cream of the crap, right? Or not? How about not? You know, everyone scrutinizes the president's picks for his cabinet. Well, God, Jesus, who are you going to pick? A revolutionary, an oppressive tax man, an opinionated loudmouth, a traitor. Yeah, just to name a few. And then there was his death. Now to us, the cross has a very different emotional impact, obviously. Again, it's beautiful, it's been sanitized, it looks lovely. And we think of it in warm and positive terms because we know what it means to us. But in his day and in his time, the cross was the most ignoble kind of death that you could have. Maybe we need to update. Neighbor, my best friend just died in the guillotine for you. If you believe this and get your own guillotine and take that up and follow him, you too will be saved. How about some new hymns? At the chair, at the electric chair, where I first saw the light. The ever-popular, there's room in the gas chamber for you. The firing squad before me. The world behind me. Come on. We'd become a laughingstock. Embarrassed. Paul said, the Jews demanded miraculous signs and Greeks looked for wisdom, but we preach Joshua electrocuted, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. See, when Jesus, the Jesus style, when he came to seek, when he was incarnational, he became real, genuine, authentic, one of us. And in so doing, revealed something about the very heart of God. Who in our lives is He seeking right now? And how might you be incarnate to them in such a way that you reveal God to them? This morning we honor Chad and Pat 
42 years of incarnation. That's incarnational ministry. That's going to seek to literally move into the neighborhood. Thank you. Those that he's seeking in your life, it may not be so dramatic. It may be right in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your school. In fact, I think that's where it is. <laughs> right? The Jesus style. I love that. Let's go on. He came to serve. Oh, this is so important, people. Here Jesus, I mean, James and John. Okay, we always pick on Peter, but James and John were just as boneheaded. So here's the three of them. Peter, James, and John. The three, you know, when we think of the twelve, then there's the three, the closest associates. And even now, when it's almost at Jerusalem and Jesus has been with them three years, they're saying, Jesus, you know what? Would you please do for us whatever we ask? I don't know. Does that sound just a bit presumptuous? Anybody else struggle with that one? And Jesus quickly responds and reorients them around reality and truth. Now, this is going to require something that you are not prepared for. And in fact... James and John, and for the rest of the, you know, and the rest of the disciples aren't any better because when they find out that James and they're just ticked off that they went and, and asked him first before they got a chance to. Come on. We're human. So are we. And Jesus says to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Philippians, the great hymn in Philippians where Paul writes and says this, who being in very nature God, speaking of Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing Nothing! Taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Can I get some air change? <laughs> Thanks. To the glory of God the Father. Just leave it on. Is it kind of heavy air today, isn't it? Everybody feel that? All right. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But listen to this. Made himself nothing. Here's what Jesus did. Hear this very carefully. This is what Jesus did. Jesus did not say that ambition is wrong. But he subverted ambition and said instead of using ambition to get to the top, 
you now are given and to be given an, an ambition to serve. Because guess what? There's always plenty of room at the bottom. There's a lot of elbow room at the bottom. So instead of an ambition to get to the top, it's now an ambition to serve. Instead of an ambition to exploit, it's an ambition to give ourselves away. And listen to this. This is very important. This ambition, this call to serve, this call is a choice. It's not something that you are invited to into by guilt or manipulation, which will only cause resentment. But it's a shift of heart that comes about when we know who we are, actually. If you look in John 13 and Jesus' washing of the disciples' feet, there's something very interesting that says that it says there. In fact, turn with me there for just a moment. John 13, Jesus is with the disciples. It was just before the Passover feast, 13.1. And Jesus knew that the time had come to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved His own who were in the world, He now showed them the full extent of His love. The evening meal was being served. The devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Listen, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under His power and that He had come from God and was returning to God. So He got up from the meal, took off His outer clothing and wrapped a towel around His waist. And after that, He poured water into a basin and began to wash His disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around Him. And at the end, when He was finished washing, verse 12, their feet, He put on His clothes, returned to His place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. But notice in those first verses, knowing who he was, knowing that he'd come from God, was returning to God, knowing that all of this, that everything was his. He really was God. Knowing that, he took off his robes and began to wash their feet. Let me give you a a simple definition of humility. Humility is knowing who we are. It's simply knowing who we are. It isn't about some sort of weird abasement of ourselves where where we try to, you know, I'm so low. I'm really a worm. I'm nothing. No, you're not nothing. You are not nothing. You're a child of God. You're nothing less and you're nothing more than that. So humility is understanding who we are and out of that we begin to choose to serve. Do you get this? This is the Jesus style. Knowing who we are, we can willingly lay aside our rights in order to enter in to the joy 
of serving Him. So my question for us this morning is, who in our lives is He calling us to serve? Who might He be calling you to serve? Simple? Ways? More substantial ways? I don't know, but who is it that He's inviting you to serve? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Jesus makes it clear here. I mean, those words, the cup, the cup speaks of the cup of wrath from the Old Testament. The baptism speaks of a death. We're going to have a baptism here, by the way, in a month, a little over a month, and I invite you, if you've not taken that step of obedience to the Lord, of publicly giving acknowledgement to the decision you have made to follow Christ, I encourage you to do so because in baptism we are actually entering in symbolically into the very death and resurrection of Christ. We are being buried. We're dying in order to live. There's never a resurrection without a death. And sacrifice. Remember, we... we, looked at this scripture several weeks ago in Mark chapter 8. He called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Oh, I've shared this story before. I want to share it again though because it's just too good. And you've heard this, many of you have heard this story, but let it, just, let it just penetrate afresh and again. Some of you have not heard it. Let it penetrate for the first time. It's the Chinese legend of the bamboo. Once upon a time in the heart of the Western Kingdom lay a beautiful garden, and there in the cool of the day was where the master of the garden went to walk. And of all the denizens of the garden, the most beautiful and most beloved was a gracious and noble bamboo. Year after year, bamboo grew, yet more noble and gracious, conscious of his master's love and watchful delight, but modest and gentle withal. But often when wind came to revel in the garden, bamboo would cast aside his grave stateliness to dance and play right merrily, tossing and swaying and leaping and bowing in joyous abandon, leading the great dance of the garden, which most delighted the master's heart. Now upon a day, the master himself you near to contemplate his bamboo with eyes curious expectancy. And bamboo, in a passion of adoration, bowed his great head to the ground in loving greeting. And the master spoke, Bamboo, bamboo, I would use thee. Bamboo flung his head to the sky in utter delight. The day of days had come, the day for which he'd been growing hour by hour, the day in which he would find his completion and his destiny. And his voice came low, Master, I am ready. Use me as you will. Bamboo, the master's voice was grave. I would... I would fain take you and cut you down. A trembling of great horror shook bamboo. Cut me down? Me, whom thou, master, has made the most beautiful in all your garden to cut me down? Ah, not that, not that. Use me for your joy, O master, but cut me not down. Bamboo, bamboo, the master's voice grew graver still. If I cut thee not down, I cannot use thee. The garden grew very still. Wind held its breath. Bamboo slowly bent his proud and glorious head. And there came a whisper, Master, if you cannot use me, but that you cut me down, then do your will and cut. Bamboo, beloved bamboo, 
I would cut your leaves and your branches from you also. Master, master, spare me. Cut me down and lay me, lay my beauty in the dust. But would you take from me my leaves and branches also? Bamboo, alas, if I cut them not away, I cannot use you. The sun hid his face. A listening butterfly glided fearfully away and bamboo shivered in terrible expectancy, whispering low, Master, cut away. Bamboo, bamboo, I would yet cleave you in two and cut out your heart. For if I cut not so, I cannot use you. Then was bamboo bowed to the ground. Master, master, cut and cleave. And so did the master of the garden take bamboo and cut him down and hack off his branches and strip off his leaves and cleave him in two and cut out his heart. And lifting him gently, carried him to where there was a spring of fresh sparkling water in the midst of his dry field. Then putting one end of broken bamboo in the spring and the other end in the water channel in his field, the master laid down gently his beloved bamboo and the spring sang welcome and the clear sparkling waters raced joyously down the channel of bamboo's torn body into the waiting fields. And then the rice was planted and the days came by and the shoots grew and the harvest came. And in that day was bamboo, once so glorious in stately beauty, yet more glorious in his brokenness and humility. For in his beauty he was life and abundant, but in his brokenness he became a channel of life to his master's world. So was Jesus' sacrifice for us. And so are we invited to let the master do as he will in us. And the question I have for us this morning is how is he inviting us to lose our lives? Where are you hanging on so hard when he wants to open our hands so that he can flow through to bring life? I love at the end of of Mark 10, 48... 45, I'm sorry, where Jesus says he came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. One life for many. Finally, to save. Of course, only Jesus saves. (laughs) For God so loved this world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The question I have for us this morning is who is he right now in your life reconciling to himself? Who is he at work in? Where is God at work bringing someone around you into salvation? Where are the seeds of that? Where are you seeing even the very beginning buds of something beginning in someone's life? Who is He? Because the Scripture says, even now, Christ is reconciling all things to Himself and all people. So who in your life right now does He have His hand upon as He's seeking? Who in your life and my life might He use us to serve 
to sacrifice in order that his life might flow and he might bring salvation. Maybe for you this morning. Maybe today you're here and you've never given your life to the one who gave his life for you. Here's the invitation today to you. is to trade your life for his because you can't hang on to your life anyway. It's a gift from him to begin with and it's his whether you know it or not. And today is the day to know it and to say yes to him. He did all that we have described for you and for me and for the world to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to seek and to save that which were lost. Do you know what the word lost means? It means to be misplaced. It's simply a lost person is just simply somebody who's out of place. Their place, we've been created for intimacy and life with God forever and eternity. And lostness simply means I'm out of place. I'm not in yet eternal life with Him. It isn't pejorative. It's not something like bad, negative. It simply means out of place. And He came to bring and put us back in place. Children of All right. Worship team, come on up if you would. Let's remind ourselves of these eight weeks of Radical Shift. Next week, we're going to be launching a new series that's going to be for the month of May. It's called One Month to Live. Simply asking the question, what if you had one month to live? What would shift in terms of your priorities, your thought. What, what would it mean? What, and, and then how do I live that out now? It's going to be great stuff. Shift one, dying to live. The core shift was that of surrender. Week two, listen up. The core shift of obedience. Shift three, presence not programmed. The core shift, that of dependence. Shift number four, an attitude adjustment. The core shift of relinquishment. Shift number five, an undivided heart, core shift, fidelity. Shift number six, like a child, the core shift to simple trust. Shift number seven, Easter Sunday, living in the third day with the core shift of hope. This morning, the Jesus style, the core shift to serve sacrificially, to give ourselves to Him, to be available and accessible for His use. All right, if you would please stand to your feet this morning as we close. Um, If you're here this morning and the Lord has spoken into your heart and you want to respond, this is simply a touch point, a place. There's nothing magical about the altar, but there is something significant in that it's a touch point. Sometimes it helps to take steps. It just hooks up our head with our heart. We're going to be singing that very last song, Kathy, the one that got added, Hosanna in the highest.
And um, as we do, as we respond to this, um, I invite you to come this morning in response, and then I'll give a benediction and we'll close.